can I can I tell you something? Sure. I cannot eat Indian food. Sure. So why did not not just my tummy? <laughs> all the way, the entire canal, especially the end. You know what I mean? <laughs> I get solid ring of fire. Oh, I cannot no, eat Indian God. food. Why did I order it for lunch? I'm gonna be in the middle of the night just shooting fire. <laughs> out of my Why do I do it to myself? Oh, you should have said this on the podcast. This is funny. <laughs> no, this is not gonna. No one's gonna hear this. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. You ever going to introduce me first? No. <laughs> no, Jason. You don't get introduced first. That's, Why? It's because it's this way every time. And it's way for three years. Not very equitable. No, it'd be equi- it wouldn't be equitable if we never mentioned you, but you're at the top of the show, like your name and your location. Equitable- right. <laughs> Does equitable now mean everyone gets a-, a shot at the driver's seat? Is that what equitable means? Just another example of, you know, don't you dare downtrodden. <laughs> don't you dare. White men can't get a break. That's what I that's what I realized in America the past two years. They can't. They have to deal with scraps, like shitty jobs, yeah. like the president. Yeah. Anyway, how are you two? Very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not dealing with scraps, so I think I feel okay. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, Trisha and I just came back from a fabulous vacation in Mexico City. Yes. Ooh. We had a great time. Sorry you weren't there, Jason, but you've got kids, so. Sorry. What happens? I know. That's, you you got the kids. We had a fabulous weekend trip to Mexico City. So. It sounds like you had enough fun for me, too. So. We certainly did. We certainly did. Trisha found a new drink. Um, <laughs> this is the part of the show where we update you on Trisha's drinking. Although she doesn't have a drink in hand today, I have to say. And she's probably already <laughs> drunk. She's probably already drunk. <laughs> At six twenty on the website. No, I'm actually, I'm actually not drunk. This is, this is a. I, I, you know what? I, I basically reject the notion. The that notion. I'm I knew that was coming. The notion. Drinker. I am simply a casual at home three to five glasses of wine per <laughs> five <glasses>. <laughs> <laughs> casual three to five bottles of wine drinker with the shades drawn and Adele playing that's all no listen I'm a single lady deal. of leisure it's wonderful you should try it <laughs> Drinking at home, good. No, but this drink was great though, Jason. It was coffee and liqueur. It was very good. It was like a whew. no. It was coffee and liquor. Yeah, was no, there liqueur li- in there? Yeah, it's a liqueur. The actual the actual mixture was a liqueur, which is cold, and then the coffee was um, an espresso. And sometimes they mixed it up, and it's called liqueur forty three. So I don't even know if there's that much alcohol in it. What's the name of the drink? Carajillo. Yes, that's it. Carajillo. Trisha had a lot of them. Oh, <laughs> Mexico so, City was lovely. Mexico City is lovely. I'm like, it's like my new favorite place. Love it. Nice. Yeah. You should go, Jason. I know. Have I you ever like been? To not to Mexico City. I've only been to the very touristy parts of Mexico. Well, actually, I've only been to Cancun. I said, well, no, that's not true. 
In a couple of places in Mexico, but not Mexico City. It's a big country. Yeah, it is a big country, isn't it? Yeah. We went to the Arca, Arca, mm, what was it? The Anthropological <laughs> Museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Anthropological the thing Museum. About it, and I guess it's true of many places around the world, thanks to Europeans. Thanks, Europeans. But it's, <laughs> it's so weird that the entire region, all these people have an entire history that, that on a single date just stops, just stops. When you see it all laid out, like all these artifacts and all like the trade routes and the rest of it, and it's just done because 90% of them die. 90% of them die. I know. It's amazing. It's like an extinction level event. It's like, that's how the dinosaurs must have felt going about their business. And then that's it. (laughs) Is that how it went? Moving on. That's how the dinosaurs were running around with their plumes, their, their feathers and everything. Dinosaurs have feathers now by the way. Yeah, I've seen that. Good luck reversing that messaging. Good luck, children's toys manufacturers. I really <laughs> wonder if at some point they're going to say, you know what? Dinosaurs were not reptile. Dinosaur books and toys, right? As we find out more, like let's say they all had like these beautiful pleather, like plumes of feathers and whatnot. Isn't there like an educational responsibility for the books and the toys to sort of like update that? Otherwise, it's just as much fantasy as Adam and Eve, isn't it? Yeah, I went there because I'm always there. But my point <laughs> is, is that like, if, you, if they continue to like put out like, well, dinosaurs look like this when we know that they really didn't, then yeah, that's kind of lame. Yeah, like there there has to be some responsibility at some point. Even though like Jurassic Park and the rest of it is like a multi million dollar dinosaurs are a multi billion dollar engine for children's toys and books and products, but like they're going to have to update all that because we just that's just it's no longer historical accurate historically do accurate. Do we really know? But how do we how how would we know that they had feathers? That's you know what? I'm gonna be really honest with you, and I'm gonna say it right here in public. Dinosaurs. I'm like a red stater now. I think it's all bullshit. No, oh, stop oh it! What? Don't you dare! Oh, Nobody okay. takes you seriously okay. now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Listen. We found the bones. There are bones. Find, this is the thing. Find. I don't. I don't buy the feathers because I haven't seen any feathers from millions of years ago. But we we found bones. We find a bone. You find like a bone, like in the pink, like, about. In, You've in, been like, to the Museum of Natural History. They yeah, bones. I've been to the Museum of Natural History. Let me tell you something. They'll find like a bone, like a claw bone. Then they're like, hmm, from this claw bone, mm, this thing was about 90 feet tall. It's got a long neck. Da, 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 da. And then they just make up the rest. That's <laughs> you, you think they found all those bones sitting in a tar pit? No, they're extrapolating. It could look wildly different than what we understand. It's possible. No, I think I think that's right. I mean, I've seen in some of the dinosaur books, like kids' books, where they'll say like, "It had this claw, and animals with claws like that—that's usually used to defend yourself against this." And it's like, come on. And then from there, they keep going. It's like, well, it must have been small, otherwise, this would have been that and that. So it's like a weird Mad Libs kind of thing that gets you to current day dinosaurs. So I don't know. Not I. I think those bones are real. I think they were in the ground. I think they fell off of creatures. But, what, you know, they find one bone, one bone, and it's <laughs> an entire Tyrannosaurus Rex. I'm like, how the fuck did you get there from, like, a single bone and a toe? I don't know. Could you imagine if someone found your rib? Like, and they made a judgment call about yeah. every part of your body? Yeah, I mean, wh- I mean, they're going to extrapolate and get some things right and some things wrong. That's all. Most things wrong. I mean, I won't say that. I mean, we've got that we've. We we we've been doing pretty well in terms of the things we've observed and there's no way to check. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> not about that. You're about saying we've been doing pretty well. There's no way to check. Not about dinosaur bones. What about others? Other things, right? <laughs> Otherwise, we're doing pr- 
pretty badly if we've been surviving. And really? kind yeah. of... Maybe I'm wrong about dinosaurs. Maybe. I was just going to say, I never knew, Chris, that you were a dinosaur denier. That's amazing. I am a dinosaur denier. I am a dinosaur denier. <laughs> it's, too, it's too incredible for him. <laughs> you know what? When I went to the Museum of Natural History and they were like, look at the structure that takes up this entire room. We found a bone and it was this big and it was six inches. And they're like, well, given this bone, this is the creature. And I'm like, okay, that, come on. Like, is that a joke? Is that for Mm -hmm. real? When I was young, I thought they were like, they like moved a stone and there was an entire skeleton. (laughs) (laughs) No, nobody's ever been that lucky with any discovery, okay? (laughs) I thought it just came prepackaged when I was little. But I had no idea that we were playing like this weird Lego game. Let's jump into topics, huh? Okay. So I've been thinking about these words that we're hearing a lot on the news and in political discourse. Socialism, fascism. Recently, the president made this speech about how terrible Maduro is in Venezuela, and he talked about how that was because of socialism. Then, of course, on the other side of the spectrum, we have more and more Democrats kind of embracing the concept. To me, the real cause of concern is displaced. To me, the real cause for concern is totalitarianism. I think Maduro seems pretty terrible, too, but not because he's a socialist, more so because he's a dictator. A lot of people around the world, a lot of governments around the world are dictatorial, But it just seems like the lines are not drawn in a helpful way right now. I think that we continue to struggle with this concept of socialism. And again, I think the term gets thrown around, fascism gets thrown around. As we're going into like a presidential season, you know, wanting to have a real vision, not just be, you know, who's going to beat Trump. I, I put the question to the two of you. We've got this dichotomy, this ping pong that gets hit back and forth between socialism, not socialism, socialism, good, socialism, bad. How do we actually engage in conversation and envisioning that leads to a vision that's good for the country and is not just, well, it's fascist, it's not fascist, socialist, it's not socialist? First, we need to define those terms. Yeah. We need to, we need to stop presuming that people understand those terms. Yeah. You're right. Because I, I think don't, people don't. I don't. I think when people use those terms, it's quite clear that they're not defining them or using them even correctly. Because they're using I, them as signals. Yeah. I saw a poll the other day that said the, the section of population with the least affinity for socialism is people like 55 and older, you know, all the people getting Medicaid. Yeah, like, which is a form huh? of socialism, yeah. right? So, 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 can we define those terms real quick, Jason? Which terms? Which uh, definitions do you enjoy? <laughs> well, no, I'm glad you asked. So, you know, socialism to me is is really about uh, an economic structure where property is owned primarily collectively, not by individuals, but by a collective in the form of a state or a community. That's socialism, as you said, Medicare socialist, Medicaid socialist. Libraries, public libraries, socialist, public education, socialist. And again, I'm saying that word without any, I'm not, I don't have a negative connotation to it. It's, it's just, just a pure definition. It's a pure definition that those are socialist institutions because they're a shared ownership. There's not one person that owns the books in the library. The people in that community own them collectively. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's, that's socialism. Fascism, I think, is a little more complicated, and I think the definition has evolved over time. But to me, fascism has the element of totalitarianism. It also often has the element of some kind of a racial 
majority theory. So fashion is yeah, not an economic yeah. structure. I think that's the point. That's the point that I want to make here. Yeah. Socialism it's, is an, it's an economic structure. Fascism is not about economics. Right. Okay. That's a good point. Because I, I think that's what gets lost in this conversation. And also socialism is split into like, it's like market forces and non-market mm-hmm. forces. Is that right? There are lots of, I think that that's the thing is that the percent, when I hear people talk casually about socialism in a fearful way. They almost never know what they're talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And also they're almost always equating it to anti-choice, to totalitarianism. That's actually right. what that's they're right. That's that's the casual way that they use it suggests because they always say that means that you're trying to take all my decisions away from me. That's how they define it. If I actually say a set of circumstances that one would define as socialist and then ask them if they agree, oftentimes you'll hear people say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Because we have a lot of socialist constructs in our country. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's how we get shit done. Like you uh, already mentioned libraries. Right. Yeah. But all, like social security, Medicaid, yeah. nobody owns those funds. No one is just out of their largesse giving that out to people. That's collective money. Yeah. That is being redistributed. So I uh, think that there's a boogeyman. I think the way that we have defined socialism for the American public is a holdover from like the Red Scare era. Yeah. I actually think that some people blend socialism with communism. Yeah, because let me see if I can remember this from 10th grade government. <laughs> you can have socialism without communism, but communism has socialism at its center. Is that correct? I think that's right. And I, I mean, I would define communism. I'm sure some political scientists would beat me up for this, but I would put it simply as a com- communism is socialism with totalitarianism. It's communism a, is socialism plus totalitarianism. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Right. Because, well, you know, I, mean, because- I think, go ahead, Trisha. No, go ahead. But I think one of the things that surprises people is like, you know, they'll go abroad, they'll hear of a story or they'll see, they'll see people abroad from, say, social socialist democratic countries. Right. All of their fears about socialism is not realized in those countries. Those people have choice. They're living their lives. They're doing what they can. They, I mean, what they're they have is a social safety net. They're much happier. Yeah. What they, and and many, in many of those countries, they are happier. They have better education system. I really do think Americans are not talking about socialism when they're talking about it. And I actually think that in answer to your question, Jason, the way that you engage in this conversation is by first defining your terms always from the get. But in a conversation, people just say the term, let you run with it because they know you don't understand it and then have a conversation around it. What I would like to see happen in debates moving forward or in any newscasts moving forward is someone says, AOC has been accused of being a socialist, which is this, but accurately define it. Yeah. Instead of just letting it lay yeah. there. That's it. That's been, that's my biggest, that's my biggest pet peeve when I watch it is like, oh no, they've just left it there. <laughs> no, I think that's right. And I, and I do think, you know, I'm, I'm often hesitant to, subscribe to a conspiracy theory. But in this case, I do think there are certain people, and I would certainly put the president in this category, who very deliberately conflate socialism with totalitarianism. The president doesn't know what socialism is. I'm going to make, that's my hot take. He I don't has, know. He has no idea what it is. Okay. Well, whether he does or not, I can't say for sure. But I there, can. Are certainly pe- <laughs> there are certainly people on the right. You know, people who have a lot of property personal property, obviously often, you know, have a strong motivation to keep that property private. 
and unique to them. And so it's in some people's interest to scare people away from socialism. I think the way they do that is they equate socialism with dictatorships and totalitarianism. And then, of course, you don't want that. So you can't have socialism. You know, to me, I think any... Isn't a dictatorship like... Dictatorship and socialism don't necessarily go together. Yeah. Socialism is about sharing community, like community resources. resources. Dictators are like, you know, I need another banquet hall in my castle or whatever. Like, you know, and and you all have to do it and give it to me. Like, it's weird how those things get completed. Well, I think think the, again, I'm going to, this is going to be way oversimplification, but I do think throughout the 20th century, we saw these movements where a country, one way or another, would become socialist. And then, um, this is going to be kind of a generous interpretation towards those people, but then there would be a concern that if there wasn't kind of a communist or totalitarian government on top of it, that it was going to be susceptible to kind of capitalist infiltration. So you take Cuba, right? You know, those who were pro-Castro would say he was trying to liberate. You had a small minority who owned a lot of property. You had a majority who was very poor. Um, and by the way, same thing in Russia, like lots of places, that's what you have. And so they chose to, you know, quote, liberate, unquote. But then there was the concern that, for instance, the Cuban exiles who had owned a lot of property were always going to try to mobilize, you know, some kind of effort to get their property back. And therefore, there had to be this like super strong government in place that would keep that out. You know, I, I think often of like, like the Bolshevik revolution where if I remember correctly, there were democratic elections after the czar was deposed, and it didn't go the way that the Bolsheviks wanted it to, and then they just took over anyway. So it was like there was this project towards socialism, but then there was a worry that democracy was going to allow for capitalism to come back, and so then there was communism. So I say all that to say I don't think it's completely disingenuous, because I think in many cases there has been that evolution, unfortunately. But to your point, Tricia, we have examples of countries that have socialist institutions. Again, our country is one of those. I mean, to me, it would be great if we could have a more mature conversation about how much socialism is the right amount. Because even, you know, you take the Scandinavian countries, you take France, England, they have more socialism than we do. They certainly have capitalism, too. They just draw the line, you know, closer to socialism. It'd be great if we could have, like, real discourse about where to draw the line rather than, as you said, a boogeyman of, like, socialism is going to kill us all, when, of course, we have lots of socialism already, and much of it is very, very popular. Well, I mean, it makes me think about what we've been talking about for a long time, which is sort of like the erosion of civic education. And I think this is the end result, is that you don't have people who understand that there are differences between economic systems, political systems, and social systems, right? And so... I mean, the other thing, too, is I think people also confuse socialism with communism, which which then blends like communism towards totalitarianism. Oh, yeah. Communism is socialism plus totalitarianism. You know what I mean? So so I actually think what Chris did is actually quite brilliant, if you think about it. Imagine if you were to begin to sort of do what you asked, Jason, which is to deconstruct elements of the society that represent certain things. Like what are sort of the totalitarian-like elements in the U.S.? What are the socialist elements in the U.S.? Are there communist elements? So that people can actually begin to sort of like parse these things out. 
we only have experienced it as a, at a distance in these terms that are like failed, right? Like failed experiments. Like when people talk about communism, oh, that was a failure. I think we can have a more sophisticated, like nuanced understanding of it if we were to look at elements of our current organizations and say, huh, that functions in a particular way. Yeah, you know, like I feel like to my mind, capitalism, I feel like people are sort of a slave to it which would in some sense engender a lack of choice, which is what some people fear, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you yeah. can have a conversation about how uh, a kind of market-based economy actually traps you. This, you know, this illusion of choice, right? So it just, I think we can sort of unpack so many terms. And the idea that also that I think democracy is only possible with capitalism people merge those two yeah oh, very me, much so let me tell you such something. a strange when you take a step back that is such a strange concept like actually if you think about capitalism all the way to it's like natural conclusion or natural conclusion like actually you get to a very different place but sorry chris you're gonna say growing up there's a game called civilization a computer <laughs> game. and uh basically you start like in caves or whatever and you have to bring your you have to bring your civilization to the point where they're launching like space probes to go to other planets. Right. In the game, there's like five different kinds of governments you can form. And what do you think is the best government you can form? You can't win unless you're that government type. And of course it's democracy. It's democracy. Without judging any of it. I'm just like, well, isn't that some shit? Like not all five of them are equal. There's like despotism, communism, (laughs) um, democracy. And then there's like monarchy and then something else. I just think it's interesting that the game designers have already have made that decided decision. that, oh, mm-hmm. democracy is the best form of government and that there's a whole generation of people who played the game. And yep. that's how education can be sly. Moving to your, to your question, Jason, in like the solutioning, like how can we do better? But we really just need to, when these things come up, to take the moment and define the terms. The media environment, as we know, it isn't going to take that moment because they make a lot more money when they gin you up about things. You know, I'm always like, you know, when people get up about socialism and taxes and the rest of it, I'm like, you know, like libraries, public roads, Medicaid, hospitals, like how do you right. think this stuff gets paid for? On one hand, it's like defining what socialism is, but then also like describing what America would be like without common property and monetary funds, like common monetary funds, like what that would really look like. It would look like, I don't even know. It would look like um, some country run by a supervillain in Marvel Comics. It would literally be Dr. Doom's country. (laughs) Literally be Dr. Doom. I also think that we need to understand that none of these forms exist purely. It's a mishmash, right? Because even in terms of capitalism, purely defined capitalism, where it's entirely controlled by the market, that's not what we have. No, right? No, we, 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 you know, the whole like, according to the market, a business is not surviving, it goes out of business, it's done, it's over. But we already know that there are people who then press upon the government to intervene. Mm -hmm. I mean, what was the rescuing of the banks? I was just gonna say the bank bailouts, also, the what do you call it? The subsidies, the crop subsidies, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, in a weird way, I will say that the one stark lesson that has come out of this period of um of trust in terms of the president and what he said was possible is look at all look at all the bankruptcies that have been declared by farmers like i mean that was supposedly an industry that was going to be nurtured by this president and in fact it has not been i think that you know you know we talked about her a couple weeks ago i think aoc does a good job of actually 
when someone calls her a socialist, she actually says, if socialism is this that, thing, the other, then I'm a socialist. This, then I'm a socialist. And then she owns it. And then other people probably, look, they probably walk away going, that's what it is. Because we know that this is what has happened in this media environment. People don't know what they don't know. And you're ginned up and you're not able to actually admit ignorance because in this environment, ignorance is death. So you pretend you know. But I, I mean, I actually, I say like, let's just define things for people and presume that maybe you don't know and say it even aloud. Like, you know what? I didn't know what this was. Say it and let somebody quietly walk away and go, oh, I might be that. Do you know what I mean? Um, like, yeah. I like that thing. <laughs> I like have I like getting on the subway. I like having, well, a good well, subway. subway. Right? Yeah. A good <laughs> I like the subway. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you, I like, I like, like the subway roads. in DC is fine. So I like paved roads. <laughs> I, like right. roads. I like street lamps. <laughs> but or also I like the idea of public goods. Yeah. I, wake up. We've allowed wake other up. people to yeah, well, control the, is, the dialogue around these things. Throw the word socialism in like a bomb and it goes off. No one wants to touch it, and that's the problem. It's just an education problem. That's what it, it is. It really is a big one. My takeaway from this conversation is that one, none of these things exist in pure forms. And two, right. the media does a bad job of educating people what these terms actually mean. You talk well, about it me- in high school, then never how it actually applies to your everyday. Ever again. <laughs> no, no, that's true. And I think, you know, I think your critiques of the media are right. But also, other than AOC and I think Bernie Sanders, honestly, a lot of our leaders don't either. They either don't want to touch the term at all. I can see why, because as we've discussed on this podcast, like even when you say I'm not this or like once a word gets thrown in, if there's a negative connotation, then it sticks to you. You know, another thing that's really interesting. I mean, just think about all the creative ways that you can define. You could play with that. As you talk about Japan, what kind of society is Japan? What do you mean? It's like some version of capitalism, but not purely. It is. is, Yeah, I think that's right. I think it is capitalist, although a much narrower band. Right. Like I always read about how. They don't have CEOs making like, you know, 30 times other employees. Like it's, it seems like a much more kind of control. That's a choice. That's a choice that the society's making, right? Yeah. That's necessarily have to do with their economic system. I mean, that's a choice that they're making. When you point those things out, you begin to understand that there are ranges and there are options. So, you know, part of it too, is I think that sometimes we don't even know what other countries are. You know, we've allowed other people to define them. And usually they're defining them in, in like these negative ways. Like now they're defining like Argentina a particular way or Venezuela in a particular way because it's having a problem, right? But if a country's thriving, I would say, well, l- look at this country. They're thriving and let's define them. Let's say what they are out loud or let's give a version of what they are out loud. Like, I don't think we've actually done that. No. So I actually don't think that people know that some of the countries that we've talked about earlier are actually socialist countries. And also, it's a, a. I'm going to stick on this. It's an education problem. I think Americans are really poorly educated about other countries. When we were in Mexico last week, Trisha, you know, Mexico has the 11th largest economy in the world. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a first world country. They're not a developing country at all. It's a Western power. But you wouldn't know that. Here. Not the way we talk about it. Not the way we talk about it. You wouldn't know. Like, I challenge everyone to look up Mexico on Wikipedia and read about that. Because you you will be shocked about what your conception of Mexico has been. And I just challenge everyone within the sound of my voice to wonder why that is. That country is doing well. Do they have drug problems? 
Yes. Do they have other sort of violence problems that we don't have? Yes. But, but it's far from like a shootout at the OK Corral in Mexico. You know, there's a couple of flashpoints, just like our flashpoints in America are any elementary school. But sure, <laughs> there are some flashpoints around Mexico. But for the most part, you know, it's it's an education problem why we perceive it in a certain way. And that's the same thing when it comes to socialism and those other systems. Um, well, what's in- so frustrating about Mexico is like you have this country that, you know, as you say, is like, first of all, a country that has so much potential. And it's because we buy drugs and, you know, it's easy to get guns here. Yep. That Mexico has the problems it has. Like, it's really our fault. Well, really sure. Is. Sure. I'm always fine with blaming America. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I, don't I, I mean, I think that can be dissected further, Jason, but I mean, sure. On but faith. we can also dissect it just in terms of our relationships with other countries, right? Mm-hmm. And like how we define the villainy in that country and then rationalize our actions in these countries. And so, and then you have a populace that just doesn't understand. Cause I have, you're right. Honest to goodness, we don't really ever talk starkly and clearly about these terms Mm -hmm. beyond elementary school or high school. High school. school. Yeah. In high school, it's a quick, it's a quick brush. Oh, in New York, we had an entire class on governments. Um, Most of it was ours. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and how it works. But, but 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 I bet you you spent a lot of time talking about failed governments. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about how American government works. Yeah. Uh, we had like a month where we talked about other governments and then even then I don't remember it very well. <laughs> also, it was pre-EU and none of that makes sense anymore. <laughs> I want to wrap up this topic, but just really quick, I want to check in with you, Trisha, because um, your ex-boyfriend, Bernie Sanders, is running for president and I want to know, has he reached out to you? Are you guys going to rekindle your romance? <laughs> um What's going on there? I think what's going to be wonderful about this period is that Bernie's going to lose, but he's going to lose cleanly, but his fans will still believe he was um, he was cheated. That's the, that's the wonder of the Bernie campaign, I think. Unless he wins, everything is a setup. What a wonderful world that is. <laughs> I don't know, that's, Trisha. You're saying that, but that's based on a sample of one. Like that's what one. sample? Uh, Have you met Bernie bros? No. <laughs> Yeah, but I, that, I, I mean, but I with Hillary, that. that was such a different dynamic than what we have. Right no, now. I, I believe. Well, hear her this, out, though, because she's saying that the I'm dynamic saying. wasn't about the time. It was about the fans and and the kind of the fans that Bernie inspires. Like he was much like Trump in that he just felt like he deserved it. This was his. Yep. And, it's his. and, and he if he lost. doesn't get it, well, then shit. It was supposed to be his. It was rigged. There is something about the nature of the way that campaign is run that just smacks of entitlement. That means that mm-hmm. if he does not win, everything else is shit. Yep. And that's mm-hmm. just a really weird orientation. That's just so strange. I am not in his camp. I know there's truth to what you're saying, but the point you're glossing over is that during that campaign... It really was rigged. Debbie Washington Schultz really did. <laughs> How do you know? Skin. No, How do you know? she resigned at midnight. Her email. Is that the first thing that ever happened? He's not a Democrat. What is he doing there? Mm. I'm just saying, it doesn't matter. There is a point there, Jason. And I think that's, that's the, I think that's the point that it's glossed over, Jason. Not the fact that the Democratic national the Democratic the Democrats were conspiring to exclude Bernie Sanders. I think it, it gets glossed over that Bernie Sanders was an independent. And of course, the Democratic National uh, Committee was going to come behind the Democrat who was Hillary Clinton. 
<laughs> which suddenly <laughs> seems like it's unfair. Yeah. I mean, listen, we and have- that's where the entitlement comes in, where it's like, well, yeah, yeah it's like, I, I should. And by virtue of that, he tends to attract a certain ilk. Which, let me tell you, that ilk believes their truth is the singular truth. Mm-hmm. All right, that's and fair. That's fair. it is very strange. You know, I listen. If he ends up winning the nomination, of course I'm going to vote for him. Of course, because whatever whatever crackpot idea he tries out, it can't be worse than what we have now. <laughs> so kids in cages. But you know what? This is the wonderful thing about Bernie. I don't know anything about any of his ideas beyond like money things. So I assume that, you know, if we do some redistribution of wealth as he envisions that all the other problems will, you know, magically disappear. Well, I will say I will say this. All of his money stuff. I just want to see all these white people get behind all this redistribution. I don't know. I don't know if they really thought through what that means. I don't think they really thought that through. And the fact that Bernie and Trump um, were sort of courting the same kind of white people. Mm -hmm. I know that's not fashionable to say, but Mm -hmm. I think it's true. They're flip of the same coin. Yeah, it just feels like yeah, Bernie's an iconoclast. He's going to be great. And then, yeah, once he's like, yeah, let's redistribute this money to communities of color, you're going to be like, whoa, wait a minute. She you won't didn't do. talk about that. And then it'll be well, like, well, actually, that was the ex- that is the logical extension of all the things I've been saying. I think well, it, I, it's going to hit people strangely. I have two quick things to say in response to that. So one, uh, we've been spending a lot of time, I think, mostly talking about people who are against socialism and their misconceptions. I think you were just touching on and I think this is real as well. Often people who are for socialism, they always assume they're going to get more yep. as opposed to give more. The same. And this, this, is, this, this is the burning. This is the challenge with universal health care. And I, mm-hmm. I am a proponent of it. I am for single payer. But best believe the three of us will be paying more, not less. Like, I'm, and I'm people, okay with that. No, I'm I okay am too. But I think so many else, people... Right? So many people who are for it assume, well, this means free health care for, for me. me. It's like, actually, it's no. Like, no, not for you. If you not have a job, you. it's actually not going to be free for you. You're going to pay into it. Like, that. that's the problem with people who are for socialism. It's always like, well, I'm going to get stuff. Like, no, 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 it's no. Like, no. I, it's like, yeah, yeah, I vote for Bernie. I make $80,000 a year. I can't wait to get all my free college. Um, yeah. no. Right. You don't get free college. Which is why this is my approach to this primary. I've just been smiling because I know the punchline for a Bernie win. And so I'm like, listen, I'll be okay with how this goes because vulnerable communities may be served. Listen, at the end of the day, whoever whomever survives this primary cycle will most likely get my support. And so I'm going to do this dance. I'm going to do this dance. I'm going to watch it play out. But I actually think my sense of Bernie is that Bernie is was maybe right on time last time, but it's going to be late. He's too late now. I agree. I want to say one other thing. It's not exactly about socialism, but it's a response to something you just said, Chris. So, you know, I think Trump's immigration policies are absolutely awful. And I do think it's the Trump administration that was the first and only one to separate families the way it has, which is absolutely abominable. However, kids in cages did not start with this administration. We've been comfortable with doing that as a country for a long time. I just want to say that. I mean, we've had for sure, but they brought it to the best level. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It may have existed before, but it is crystallized 
in such a way that it will be endemic to them, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and, and, and again, the fact that we would first forcibly separate families as a deterrent and then put those kids we just tore away from their parents' arms and then stick them in a cage, I mean, that's new and that's awful, no question. I mean, and, and our, our, our karmic soul will feel it, so. <laughs> okay, moving on to- <laughs> On that note. On that note. Uh, let's move on to Trisha's topic. We're going to talk about Steven Spielberg and his old manedness. Go for it. <laughs> Immediately after the Oscars, news came out that Steven Spielberg would like to introduce a new rule in the Oscars proceedings about who can and cannot be nominated for Oscar awards. Steven would like Netflix to be locked out of Oscar contention because he contends that streaming is actually TV, which means they should be eligible for Emmys and they should leave the movie business to the movie studios. Now, if you're like Jason and sometimes Chris, you're like, who the fuck cares about the Oscars? But that's that's Jason. I don't and, need to say anything else. Thank you. Always, Chris. Always. But we actually, the reason why we're having this conversation is I think we be, we really believe that this is actually about more than the Oscars. That's like the touch point. But I think this is actually about something else. I think this is really a question about the evolution of what a movie experience is in a digital universe. My sense is that this is Steven's bid to try to reign in the future. I think it's interesting to me that someone like Spielberg, who managed to kick in doors to make a different type of movie in the late 70s when Jaws came out and everything that he's done since then, it's just funny that the innovators are the ones who are manning security at the wall. He's created a kind of movie environment, which has been very rewarding to him. And now other people are trying to innovate. He's like, no, 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 no. That's not a thing. And I want to point out that Netflix responded to Spielberg when they tweeted something. Um, they said that they love movies. And here's some other things that we also love. They, they tweeted and they said, like, access for people who can't always afford or live in towns without theaters, letting everyone everywhere enjoy movies at the same time and giving people, directors and film people, more ways to share their art. There's so many ideas in there that are so much about 21st century and where we're headed It's not shocking to me that Spielberg would make this appeal. He's a very rich man and he wants to remain very rich and he has a worldview about movies, but it's the, the tone deafness of it. Like read the room, dude, like read the room. Roma got nominated for 10 Oscars. People fucking love that movie. That's all I have to say. I, I feel, I don't know. I'm just kind of rocking back on my heels because of that. I'm like, really dude, really you really? Okay. What about you, Jason? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really, I don't purport to know what's really behind, you know, Spielberg's feelings and action there. I mean, it seems like such a classic to go through the trajectory you just went through, Chris. Of, you know, you started out as an innovator and a rebel, then you know those folks, when they're successful, become the establishment, and the establishment seeks to preserve itself. Like that's, and I don't know if that's all it is or if there's more to it. I know that Netflix has. I think, first of all, I think they should get some credit that, yes, they have made a lot of different kinds of programming accessible to a lot of people. So they should get some credit for that. I also think there does seem to be quite a bit of diversity, uh, both in terms of 
well, in every way, who's making the movies, who's in the movies, who's in the shows. So I think they deserve some credit for that. To me, ultimately, the question is, is Netflix really going to make a difference when it comes to equity in the kind of film and television industry? I heard an interview recently. I guess there was a report put out. I should research this better. But there's a report put out about um, diversity in the film industry. Like, I guess a report comes out kind of every year. Yeah. And so one of the headlines UCLA was that. That's right, UCLA. And one of the headlines was that, like, I think in 2017, there were, like, twice as many female directors as in previous years. And that percentage was 12%. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, that's doubled. That's awesome. And yet, oh, my God. that is So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is before I rush to kind of have a strong position on like, no, Netflix should have more of this market share, Oscars, whatever. I'd want to make sure that, you know, it's actually moving uh, the needle. You know, Reed Hastings, who started and runs Netflix, happens to be someone I've met a few times. Really nice guy, obviously really smart guy. And so what I'm about to say is not at all like a dig on him, but like, you know, ultimately these are two wealthy white guys arguing about who gets access to certain things. And I'm only, I'm not terribly interested unless I know that one of those is going to make a real difference in a way that the other is not. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I recommended a book called um, Platform Capitalism. And I think this is actually an instance of it. Really, the point the author makes is that platforms are the new space, right? It's the new landscape. Instead of having a manufacturing plant, you create a platform. And so this is an example of a movie platform. But one of the things that the author suggested is that in order for you to work within a platform um, economy, you have to have more and more and more and more data. And so in some ways, what Steven Spielberg is aware of is that he's at the height of a former phase of capitalism, the, the, the studio system, the traditional studio system. And what he's now encountering is the newbie who will become the dominant model in the future. I think actually the whole idea around diversity and all that kind of stuff is actually a little bit of a distraction because what you're going to end up with is Netflix's in the future and they will control the marketplace. The reason why they're able to enter the marketplace right now is because they are offering something that is new, but they may end up in a space where they then return to a place where they are the signal maker. And you and Jason's question becomes really clear. Will they then continue to offer what they have been offering? Or are they using this to enter the space? It's similar. We saw that play out with the CW. The CW offered minority programming, used that as a platform to become quite wealthy. But right. in the beginning, those stations, they used minority eyes and gazes to acquire wealth. And then as soon as they were able to, they immediately shifted their offerings. Mm-hmm. And so this is both, I think, a battle of technologies, I think it's like the Napster thing all over again, right? This is streaming is the future. And And Netflix has entered and controls the marketplace right now. And I think 10, 20 years from now, Netflix is going to be like the main studio house. I understand how hard it is. Yeah, I understand how hard it is. It must be for someone like Steven Spielberg and all these people who have made tons of movies using this format. I understand how it's not easy to know when it's time to step aside. 
and let not at all and and let the timeline do what the timeline is going to do, which is constantly move forward. the The need or the desire to fight the future just seems like it seems like shooting yourself in the foot because Netflix makes the point that they are they are distributing movies in a new way because a lot of these prestige films, and this is always a criticism of the Oscars, is like the Oscars comes out and films get nominated for Best Picture, which you've never heard of if you don't live in New York or LA because the only place that they're showing, they're only showing like down the East Village or the Arclight for like two shows a day and that's it. And that's going to be the Best Picture. And it just seems like it's a system that is making entertainment for themselves and people just like them. And if when this comes out and much like the Napster thing, Spielberg is like, Spielberg is like pre iTunes thinking, which is like, no, 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 we have to fight this and kill it as opposed to finding a way to use it and evolve. Because if Spielberg is correct, if Spielberg uh, succeeds here, what it's going to be is that the Oscars is going to become more and more esoteric to the point where it really doesn't matter. It will extinct itself. Again, like I said earlier, I've, I'm expressing so much shock that he, and I, I have a lot of respect for him as an artist. I just can't believe he can't see that. But I think no one can. No, I can. I'm sitting right here. What do you? I just no, 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 no. But, but what I'm just saying is nobody in a monopoly retreats. They have a they have can. a monopoly right now, right? They all I guess do. No one ever That's- says, "Well, I've made enough money." <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's but so true. <laughs> no one ever says it. And if one of us gets really rich, I hope the other two are willing to say, "You know what? You have enough." I will be the first. I will be the first to say, like, you know what? I have a couple of tens of millions. I have enough money. But Jason, you said you had a point. (laughs) Yeah, what I was going to say is, I guess what's frustrating or disappointing to me is what this conflict we're talking about. So it is, I think it is the way you were just framing it, Chris. That's certainly what it is. It is kind of the future versus the past or the future versus the present. Like that, that it is. What it is not, even though, again, I think Netflix deserves some credit. There's a lot of diversity there. But we're not seeing a democratization. Right. Like we're not. See- I mean, I wish we were having this conversation about three new platforms. That's the term we want to use that are like, you know, controlled by people of different backgrounds other than, you know, white men. Uh, but we're not having that conversation. And that's unfortunate. And I'm sure there are a million reasons why that's the case. But I'd be more interested in this conversation if it was actually like there are some, you know, minority owned studios or or platforms that you know, are trying to get into the market and that, and someone's putting their foot down there. And that's, that's not where we are. Like I still, you know, to put it kind of in Marx's terms, like means of production are still largely owned by the same. I think really ultimately too, the battle is going to shift because I think what Steven Spielberg and others are anticipating is all the others entering the streaming marketplace. Yeah, for sure. It's going to have to go. Yeah, it's it's just where it's going to have to go. And I guess to Jason's point, though, does this battle's ground give room to others to enter? I don't think so. Because actually, I think, I actually think the weird model about Netflix, which is another part of this, is that it loses a lot of money. But the reason why Netflix, like Uber and Lyft, is comfortable losing a lot of money is because they're trying to establish marketing position. Mm-hmm. They're trying to. They're trying to. They're actually trying to control the market because they're the first there. I mean, I, yeah, that's right. And that's why I say we, we're not seeing the democratization because mm-hmm. Netflix. And I, this isn't necessarily criticism because this is what companies yeah. do. But Netflix is doing its 
darndest <laughs> to like not have competition. I mean, yeah, it is not like, and again, this is not a critique, but it's not like Reed Hastings is saying, you know, <laughs> we're just one of a thousand flowers nope. that are going to bloom in this. No, like he is, you know, he is spending the money, as you're saying, Tricia, to have the programming that nobody needs anything else. Like that's definitely that's, the strategy. And that's exactly what, but that's exactly what's interesting about thinking about platforms is that that's what platforms require. They require that they be the singular place in the space that you look for. Yeah. And well, and I actually think that is really weird and scary because under the guise of a sort of like under the face of diversity, which Netflix offers, it's actually a monster. If you think about it long term, if you think about the fact that they are actually going to actually shrink the market as opposed to expand it, which is look, the I mean, that's up to and them. that's Facebook, right? That's Facebook. Yep. Like Facebook exactly. succeeded in yep. basically elbowing everybody, everybody out. out. I mean, everyone's on Facebook. And yeah, we've got these other innovations, Instagram and whatnot. But like Facebook, everyone's on Facebook. And look at the vulnerability that that brings and all the problems that that brings. And but yes, we've reached, think, but, and I don't want to shift the topic, but we've reached peak, peak Facebook. It's on the but, decline. But what you haven't, at least not yet, like as Facebook rose, it's not, and it's the same thing with like Uber and Lyft. Like early, early on, there were a bunch of little, you know, apps or whatever competing. And then one or two arise and just like knock everybody out. That happened with Facebook. This happened with Uber and Lyft. And I think that's happening with Netflix. And I think, you know, so on one hand, it's 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 this kind of general discussion about the movie making experience and the movie watching experience. Is it in a theater? Is it in your home? Which is neither here nor there. It's going to be both. And it's just, I think what's going to happen in the future, though, is that you might end up doing a little bit of what we've done with music, which is like you're paying membership fees to be in a theater or something like that. Probably. You know, and, and, the, you know, that's the fetishization yeah. of theaters, I find yeah. surprising. I, I find that surprising. Do, do you do you really though? Because I think because I think there's a and that, and and I think that's actually what Steven Spielberg is holding on to is that fetish is that idea that there's like a movie that needs to be seen in a dark house with an audience and and you can and you can really sell that because that's there's a communal aspect to that that's resonant resonant with people right mm-hmm. I'm in a room with other humans not isolated in my home drinking wine, as you would say. Yes. Right? Not, so, not as I would say, as you do, nightly. As you do, right? So <laughs> there's something really compelling about that vision. But I think it's going to be preserved in a very specialized way. Like, you know, you know those like those specialty movie houses now where your membership. Oh, like people, Alamo. They have that. Yeah. Open. They serve you I food and you, you get a sure. mailing list. Yeah, it's great. It's It's wonderful. Exactly, right? You can control all those elements of it. But um, I think that's actually the future. So I actually think this battle is a sort of non-existent battle. I think it will die. They might decide not to give Netflix Oscars bid, but all Netflix has to do is agree to release its Oscar-worthy films in theater for four weeks. That's it. That's what they want. Well, we'll see if that satisfies them. That That would be an interesting dodge. But that that you know that was what was interesting about the article that I think we read about it, which was you know Spielberg makes this big argument, but then it's really like it's just a matter of where you draw the line. Like yes. okay, so to be to be eligible for an Oscar 
and anywhere they draw the line, Netflix can do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, you, you, like, want, sure. you want to be in the theater for four weeks? We'll do it four weeks. They'll, oh, they'll build a theater. Weeks. They'll just build a theater <laughs> and put it in that theater, one theater, and they'll be like, okay, it's in theaters. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And in that part of it is a little bit screaming of the screaming at the moon because it's about yeah. something else, right? It's about, yeah. it's not about this. The Oscars is the bait, but it's really about the evolution of film in a digital world, just like how we talk about other things, books. Didn't we think books were dying? We always think books is, we've been thinking books have been dying since the paperback. <laughs> With the printing press, probably. They're probably moved back then, so yeah. this is it. They were like, this is the end of books. Once you can't get your, once you can't get your Bible personally written, it's going to be the end of everything. Like, <laughs> I true. Want- you know what? I never thought about it. There probably were some scribes saying, this is not Yeah, it's going to put us out of business. This isn't a book. This is, this is a travesty. So on one hand, I have to say, when I started thinking about this and looking at it, I really wanted to be against Steven Spielberg. And I'm not on his side because I think his bait is dumb, the Oscar. But I think he should have been asking a different question, which is Jason's questions about, is this really diversity of the marketplace? Is this, re- you know what I mean? Like, or is this going, is there just going to be one lone shark in town? Like, I think that would have been a more interesting question to ask, as opposed to this sort of silly piece, which I think is going to be settled anyway. Because <laughs> I think it actually distracts from the real yeah. monster that Netflix actually is. Not in a bad way, but I mean... And can anyone else pop up a screen, uh, um, a streaming service that's not Netflix and not connected to a, a traditional studio and survive? I don't think so. Think someone, hard to now that you put it out there, someone will find a way. If it's valuable, <laughs> someone will find a way. Yeah. No, if it's valuable, someone will find a way. Uh, let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Jason. I am ready today with real media recommendations. I'm so excited. What? <laughs> real one? <laughs> I'm so excited. I have two. They both were on NPR. So I will say that right off the bat. <laughs> like you, um, you present the cosine first. So this is it's real legitimate people because NPR already vetted this. Go ahead. <laughs> the first one. So there's this uh, show on NPR called Snap Judgment, which I enjoy. There is an episode, uh, 1005, called I'm Your Man, which is about this woman. Uh, and this is a you know true story. She suddenly gets a call that her ex-boyfriend from 10 years earlier, they were together for three and a half years, uh, is on trial for murder. Mm-hmm. And they want her to be some kind of a character witness. What? And, and the, woman, the woman who it actually is, she produced the segment. And so the story's interesting, but more interesting than the story is is the actual production. It is so well done. I'll just give you one example. He, this guy, her ex-boyfriend was a musician. He recorded a couple of CDs. She plays his songs that he made for her throughout the episode. And it is so haunting. And she realizes there are certain things about him she didn't realize at the time. It, it is so good. So that's one. The other is, I always get this wrong, on All Things Considered Weekend, hosted by Michelle Martin, she interviewed a guitarist named Gary Clark Jr. I have to admit I had never heard of him. Have you, either of you heard of him? Mm-mm. I don't think so. So he's played with like a lot of really famous people like 
Stevie King and Eric Clapton. So he has a new album called This Land and she does an interview with him and it it is just so good. And hearing the thought behind the songs on this album and his perspective as an African-American uh, rock guitarist from, I don't know if he would call himself rock guitarist, blues guitarist. He clearly plays all different kinds of music with his guitar um, from Texas. Uh, oh, it was so good. Those are my recommendations. Wow, those are like solid recommendations. Those are no, 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 don't, don't overpraise him. He's doing what <laughs> everyone should have been doing for the past three years. So, <laughs> so do not overpraise him, Jason. Thank you for your media recommendation, which is required of you every other week, just as it is Trisha and I. So moving on, Trisha, what would you recommend? I feel like a second grader. Oh, that was was hilarious. I feel so horrible. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you're going to have to go, Chris. I don't have one right now. I haven't really had a media experience. Can I I take yours? Because uh, mine's going to be a bit lengthy. Sure, please. Okay. Um, so this is going to be a topic in the future, but I, I just saw part one of the Michael Jackson documentary, Leaving Neverland. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have literally like half an hour of thoughts about this. The thing is, is like, would I recommend that people watch this? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend you watch it and then go directly to bed like I did. Um, <laughs> did you have nightmares? Not the way. <laughs> I didn't have nightmares. I just didn't sleep very well. But what I want to point out is that people, you know, there was this thing that it showed at the Cannes Film Festival and mm-hmm. people were like leaving the middle and retching and being sick, which now after seeing it, I'm like, those people were being really super dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe I've had a different experience because I've I've worked with sexual abuse survivors and I've sat across from child molesters and the rest of it. And I have to say the thing that struck me most about Michael Jackson, if you take what these men saying to be the truth, which I do. The shocking thing about it is just how mundane it was. You know, mm-hmm. Michael Jackson operates much like most child predators. There was really nothing about it that was special other than his unimaginable wealth, which honestly, what am I trying to say here? I have a lot of thoughts about it, but like, that's the one thing that struck me is that like the tale that's told mm-hmm. is not so different from so many tales I've heard from sexual abuse survivors about how they were groomed and in, like inculcated it into this relationship. Now, I think when we were living through all of this court stuff, what was going on, we had this idea that people were being paid off and like children were being bought and sold in this way. And so it seemed really salacious. Um, maybe that's going to be in part two. That doesn't exist in this part of the story right now. It was mm-hmm. just Michael Jackson grooming um, these two particular boys and their parents which I think is going to be overlooked when people take to Twitter to express whatever they're going to express. But Michael Jackson had a really a pattern of grooming the parents as well. You know, people talk a lot about uh, how Macaulay Culkin says he wasn't touched whatever. And Macaulay Culkin wasn't his type. More importantly, Macaulay Culkin's parents weren't Michael Jackson's type. He wouldn't be able to get away with the kinds of things that he got away with these other boys. Anyway, I mean, we can talk about this. I think you two should watch it so we can talk about it. Yeah, it's it's disturbing in and as far as like they these men describe the sex acts that they performed on and with Michael Jackson, which I'm gonna be honest, you can't look at them the same way again. Like it's not possible. So if you want to enjoy Michael Jackson, don't watch this documentary. When that little boy is telling the story about how, you know, he goes to see Michael Jackson and 
you know, he's editing the way you make me feel. And then like, you know, whatever, he takes him upstairs and molests him. Like that's stuck in my head now when I hear that song, I'm afraid. Um, You know, and it's just, and the little boy, do you two remember the Pepsi commercial? Yeah, he's so adorable. About the little boy who goes into his dressing room and like looks around and stuff. And then Michael comes in, Michael Jackson molested that little boy. I remember that commercial. I remember that kid. And to think that from that moment when I saw that commercial till today, he's been suffering. I know. It's awful. It's It's really awful. I was watching with someone who was like a generation behind me and I had to explain just how fucking famous Michael Jackson was back then. We don't have stars like that anymore. Like no one behaves this way around famous people anymore because social media has really leveled the playing. You know, now that I can just tweet at Beyonce, right? you know, whether or not she reads it or whether or not she ever responds, the fact that I have that channel open uh, just makes her a real person. Michael Jackson was a god. And so I can't imagine the impact of having Michael Jackson come to your house for dinner. That would have been, I mean, it would have been, there's no comparison for that today. There's nobody today other than a mythical figure like Jesus. There's no comparison today for someone that famous showing up to your dinner. So um, see it, don't see it. You won't enjoy it. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) There it is, America. It sounds, it's interesting that you say that though, um, because I think there are elements that are very similar to the R. Kelly one based on what you just described, because in many ways, R. Kelly comes across, like he seems like a predator because of what you've heard. But in terms of the interactions with the people he has, he comes across like a kid too. Mm-hmm. Um, like a person trapped at a certain, at a particular age, which is probably the age when he was sexually abused, which is the age that he uses to then um, create a sense of camaraderie and, and, and kinship with this, the, the people who are of that age. Oh, was um, it abused? Is that like documentary? That's, that's, in, that's stated in the documentary by a yeah. sibling that he was sexually abused as well and all of that at a particular age. And so he then uses that, those elements and the fact also that at some point in time he couldn't read and can't read maybe still to connect with the teen. So he, he himself becomes a teen and therefore then interacts with them like a teenager. So that there's a similarity there. But then I think the difference too, is that there are, it also sounds to me like, I don't know if this is clear in the, in the Michael Jackson documentary as compared to R. Kelly. I think the R. Kelly documentary also makes a really big case for the fact that there's an industry of people that allowed him to make this happen. I think that's the thing that is missing in part one. Uh, By the time you hear this, America, I would have seen part two. The thing that's missing is like the industry, the machine that is feeding boys. Like that's the thing. Because that's that's what's different from R. Kelly, from the Catholic Church, from Brian Singer, is that there did not seem to be an entire collection of people surrounding Michael Jackson. I mean, I'm sure people are making this happen. But Mm -hmm. even in the description, Michael was very careful to keep it from everybody. Seems you know, like it, yeah. It like R. Kelly had teams of people yeah, that were malls right. and diners for girls. Yeah. And that, that's something that yeah. that's something I found made the Jackson story very mundane. Like he was just a solitary predator, which, given his access and given his money, you would think that he would hire people, or whatever. But I have a I, quick recommendation. But it's, it's oh, uh, see, they, see, I found one. Your juice is flowing. Go. It's a. It's actually um, an opinion piece on Michelle Obama's book, which you know I adore. 
Yes. Uh, but this is a really interesting opinion piece in the New York Times called Michelle Obama's Rules of Assimilation. Actually, it calls out two of the biggest things that I had a problem with in her book, which is how Michelle Obama deals with um, Reverend Wright and also kind of the conversations around race propagated by, by others about her. That is the key failing of that book. It's a wonderful personal story, but when it comes time for um, Michelle to really dig deep and talk about race in America, and I think a pretty truthful way, beyond the personal, I think that book really falters. And hmm. I think the, two, the salient points around that is her wholesale rejection of the ideas of Reverend Wright as being both sidedism, because I think our, Reverend Wright had something real to say. Um, she, and she sort of dismisses him as paranoid. And then there's also the question of what it meant when she said that for the first time as a Black American, she was proud of America and, and sort of how she characterizes that. I think the author in this opinion piece makes a really good, really good point about a kind of assimilation narrative that the Obamas still really hark to and still really point to. They can't really ever fully critique race in America in a way that I think still needs to be done. All right. Well, so, there it is. Yeah. All right, everybody. Good job, everyone. Um, Good job. Regular job for Jason. <laughs> Finally grew up enough to be real. Yes. You, you just made the bar. You didn't overachieve. You just <laughs> made the bar. I, I cannot stress this enough. This is how you should be performing every other week. That's it. And on that note, bye everybody. Bye. Bye.